Ciao, and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Rudy. This week we're talking about Eight and a Half, the 1963 Federico Fellini avant-garde surrealist comedy drama. Riddy, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay this week, Tom. I wanted to ask you, though, have you been watching Loki? I have. It occurs to me that you probably don't even have to be watching Loki or caught up on Loki for me to ask this question, but that jacket, Tom Hiddleston really looks good in that jacket he wears. You know, we're turning it on last night and my significant other's like, do we have to? I don't understand what's going on this season. And I said, I don't either, but I just like the way the show looks. Like, I'm just enjoying it for the aesthetics, the way yeah. Tom Hiddleston looks. Like, I've explained to her that he's a tall, skinny man icon, so I have to support him for that. I like the aesthetic of the settings, of the scenes, like all the buildings and the rooms, everything just looks good. But... I don't know what's yeah. going on with the plot, though. <laughs> it's funny you say that because, you know, uh, my partner is not super into Marvel. But after the end of last night's episode or or the, the fifth episode, mm -hmm. I think, she was like, that was really good. And I was like, OK, I'll take it. But my real, you know, the thing I was focused on was like, A, he looks really good in that like TVA jacket uh, Tom Hiddleston does. Uh, B, you had mentioned like your how you feel a kinship with him just being tall, thin, white men. And I thought about that in my jealousy about being a tall, thin, white man. Well, we're also, he if and I, I are, he and own, I are like, also in the Tom yeah. Tom club. That's fair. Wait, is it, is that just because your names are Tom or is there something, is there a reason there are two Toms in that? I can't remember the origin of the band name, but yes, it's, it's because we're Toms and that we are uh, very good with percussive instruments. <laughs> Fair enough. If I could pick my own like body shape, it would be you and or Tom Hiddleston. Well, you you say that, um, but then I walk by the, the the high school down the street. I'm pretty sure they call me Slender Man, so I'm not sure how appealing this body is. <laughs> but I like how he fills out that jacket. And then my second thought was like, I guess that's how you end up dating Taylor Swift. Um, is filling out a jacket in that in that way? Are so, any of her songs about um, him? It's just got this. I I started to look that up and I couldn't figure it out. I'm not like I like Taylor Swift as a musician. Uh, in all honesty, like that is I know that I can see you doing the shame motion to oh, me right now. But, I don't care. But like I I tried to figure it out and I couldn't like get down to it. But I did have a thought like, is there like very apparent age difference when they were dating? Is that weird or is that just like Hollywood or is that just Taylor Swift? Buddy, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> Next on Taylor cast. Um, my, my other question is also Marvel related um, and we don't have to go into specifics given that the game just came out, but Marvel Spider-Man 2, I've been going hard on, on the game and I felt felt like I had some like really important thing to tell you or talk to you about, or like not important about the game, but like kind of tangentially important, but I can't remember what it is, but I will say flying is like really hard in the game. Really? Like, I love the flying feature. Flying. It's, it takes some getting used to, but it gets to be so much fun and very easy to handle. Well, for me, it's like, I get it in the sense of like, you've just like, Maybe not double the size of the world, but like it's bigger than it was in the previous. Two we got games, queens so... now, baby. Yeah, 
I, I I'm pretty sure I saw Frank Costanza in while I was like flying through, but no, like uh, it's just like you want me to go down so I can go up, and it's very hard for me. Wait, to, what like, are we talking about now? Um, cognitively, do that. <laughs> say, what are we talking about now? You said you you want me to go down to go up. What you gotta? I'm getting. I'm not sure what you're talking about now. <laughs> um, you know, I'm talking about flying <laughs> like. You do the web wings and like you have kind of have to go down so that you get you get some 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 speed and then you like come back up and it's like this is very hard for me cognitively and maybe sexually uh to understand yeah i think out of context this entire conversation could apply to cunnilingus but maybe i'm going a little too blue with that oh no yeah <laughs> okay tom no uh not the way i do it <laughs> uh is what i'm gonna say Okay. Um, and then the last point I just had was like, well, two points. One, I'm taking a lot of screenshots just so I can use them as like computer wallpaper or whatever. And I would buy a game that is just like, you could have Spider-Man's, Spider-Men's, both of the Spider-Men and like the character, the other characters and just dress them up and pose them and like take screenshots of it. Um, they could sell me that for like $70 and I would probably still I mean, with it. all the costumes. Um, and finally, Venom. I was going to say, with oh, all the suit right? features, you can kind of do that already. You have the, I think each, I think Peter Parker and Miles each have like 30 to 40 different uh, suit alternatives. And even then, those have yeah. alternates within themselves. And then they have the photo mode. So you yeah. kind of can, what you just described already yeah. exists within the game. Kind of, but they could just sell me like without the game part of it. Like just the, like the dress up Spider-Man dolls. Um, and let me take screenshots of it, and I would uh, I would pay seventy dollars for that. But yeah, like the the costumes are pretty cool. I won't I won't reference any specifics, but there are a couple of um, especially Miles costumes that reference uh, other Marvel characters, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, uh, my only last point is, uh, and I just got to this point in the game, but uh, and I'm not spoiling anything because it's been a part of the advertising and stuff like that, but. Venom still kind of sucks as a character, huh? I don't know where you are in the game, so I don't want to say too much. Sure. Because it snowed in Denver last weekend, so all I did was stay inside and play Spider-Man. So I've already beat the game. I've beat the main storyline. Okay, you're ahead of me. I only sure. have side quests left, so I will bite my tongue. Yeah. But I will say I like the black suit, which is appropriate because a black suit looks very good in this week's movie, Eight and a Half. <laughs> I love the black suit uh, in Spider-Man, but I Venom is so-so. But yes, uh, I did want to ask you about Eight and a Half. Um, this is what Mad Men was based on, right? How do you mean? I think you're right, but elaborate on that. I kind of meant it as a joke. I don't know if it's actually serious. Like, I wasn't trying to be serious, but it is like, it's set in the 60s, obviously, the men are very well dressed. Um, whatever other feelings I have about the movie, um, you know, it did give me that Don Draper um, sexiness of the 60s sort of feel, uh, you know, kind of throughout the runtime. Well, I think there are some similarities between this movie and Mad Men now that you mention it. Oh. And just yeah. to kind of go off the top of my head, both leads in the movie and in the show are handsome creative men who have issues with adultery when you said handsome men i was two handsome men i was going to be like oh shucks you didn't have to say that about us 
but I do have a note that says like, is the only path to self-realization in the sixties sleeping around? It seems that way, but you know, this is also the very start of the sexual revolution. So maybe this is a precursor to that. Yeah. But I, I think powerful men like have always been able to sleep. Like it's never been like uh, a barrier to, uh, you know, a Don Draper type, just, you know, the sexual revolution didn't stop them from sleeping around. No. Um, and then I did also have the question if Don Draper had ever watched Fellini in Mad Men. And so um, I did look that up and it, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be a case where he had seen or watched one of his movies uh, on the TV show, but I wouldn't have been surprised if he had, because it did seem like there was some sort of, you know, kind of pollination into Mad Men uh, from this sort of film. From what I remember about Mad Men, Don Draper was a film fan. Cause I remember he went to see Godzilla yeah, at one point and he talked about Catherine Deneuve. So he was definitely watching foreign art house films. Yeah. So I think it's a reasonable, reasonably safe assumption to say that he probably saw a Fellini film at some point. Yeah, no, I'm sure he did. Uh, I just was wondering, I actually was like specifically, did they reference it in the TV show? Cause like, it does seem like there are things that are getting pulled from here and that might be just based on they're both in the sixties, but it did seem like, as you were saying, there was some, maybe there was some inspiration uh, on Mad Men uh, from this kind of film. Well, we kind of hinted at it last episode in Life Aquatic when we, when Wes Anderson mm -hmm. in the director commentary for that mentioned Eight and a Half as an influence on that film. But I'm getting the impression you may not like it. So I want to get into that as soon as possible because I think that'll be fun to talk about. But we do have to acknowledge sure. that this is one of the more influential films in film history a lot of pretentious directors throughout the past 50 60 years have cited this movie as one of their favorite films mm -hmm. so if it wasn't a direct influence on the style of Mad Men I think indirectly at some point it probably factored into people who were on the production directing side I, I, I yeah I can't imagine one of the quintessential films of the 60s would not have influence yeah first like i i'm sure like even if it wasn't directly sort of applicable to Mad Men, which i would be surprised if it wasn't but like that cultural osmosis of like going through like in the way that we know a lot of cultural touchstones through the simpsons like i'm sure you know eight and a half probably influenced Mad Men in that way if not directly but also you know i kind of watched the movie and then kind of sat with the idea of like what the hell did i just watch and looked it up and like read the Wikipedia and they said the same things that you did, that it's like one of the most influential sort of uh, movies, period. Um, not even international movies, not even like um, Italian movies, but one of the most influential movies of all time. And I saw that on the Wikipedia, it said the film was ranked seventh in the BBC's 2018 list of 100 greatest foreign language films. And I clicked on the list to be like, well, if they don't have Seven Samurai on this list, I can just disregard this list as being bullshit. And of course, Seven Samurai is first on that. And then to Ozu's Toku Tokyo Story is third. So I was like, shit, <laughs> I have to really believe what this list is saying now. Because um, they uh, they uh, follow my thinking in, in stuff that I have watched before and, and do kind of, uh, I don't want to say respect in the terms like I don't respect this movie. Um, you're asking if I like it or don't like it. And I talked to you about this off mic, but 
Um, I've been under the weather and maybe it's hearable or you can hear it in my voice. Um, so like I've been putting off watching the movie and I ended up just watching it earlier today with the idea that it's fine, I'll breeze through it. It's not a big deal. And this was a terrible movie to try that uh, theory or process out on because like, I really like, unless it's like garbage like Venom, I really like having a few days to like kind of sit with things. And I really could have used a day or two to sit with this and kind of think about what I thought or what I just saw. And I'll begin sort of like talking about it by saying there's a lot of stuff that I really liked about well, I, it. I want to cut you off. It's a beautiful... I want to cut you off oh. first because I'm assuming <laughs> whoever's listening may not be familiar with the movie. So I don't want to be talking totally out of context. So I want to read this brief description. Oh, we should, yeah, we should summarize on, the movie here. That I found on the Google search. The plot for Eight and a Half is described as a troubled Italian filmmaker, Guido Anciemi, played by Marcello Mastriani, struggles with creative stasis as he attempts to get a new movie off the ground. Overwhelmed by his work and personal life, the director retreats into his thoughts, which often focus on his loves, both past and present, frequently wander into fantastical territory. As he tries to sort out his many entanglements, romantic and otherwise, Guido finds his production becoming more and more autobiographical. All right, now go to town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, the words I've waited to hear from you for <laughs> decades now. Yeah, no, and this is why I like doing that summary of the movie at the top, just so we could be like, now we're going to get into it. But it's a good summary. And it's actually, I was really surprised by how short the summary is of the movie and like how limited the narrative narrative of the movie is. Um, it's not like a really complex narrative, but it is a complex movie. And so a lot of stuff I love about it. One, like that black and white, it's just beautifully filmed. Um, there was a scene where I think he was in a confessional and you had the light coming through like the wooden partition uh, between the priest and, and Guido. And that was just like lovely. That was like a beautiful uh, shot. Like this is like black and white that I would put up with any like Kurosawa or Ozu movie and just like being like wonderfully shot. The film grain was really good. I watched it on Max and so maybe not the best experience uh but it you know it looked really good there was a fiats in that first like opening scene i'm like my favorite to the extent that i know anything about cars which is not much the fiat 500 the old fiat 500 is one of my like favorite cars and so seeing like fiats like 60s fiats was really cool well, let's talk about that opening and, scene you know, some. it's of, it's, yeah. it's yeah, so yeah. for people who haven't seen it the movie starts the main character is stuck in a car in traffic that's not moving there's no noise but he's just surrounded by yeah. cars in every yeah. direction and then as it goes on you start hearing some noises and gas starts coming into the car and you start realizing this is a dream sequence because he kicks him his way out of the car and then he takes a christ-like pose and flies over all the traffic and then gets into the sky flying through the clouds and then you find him with a rope attached to his leg and these two men on a beach start yanking him down to earth and his body crashes mm -hmm. into the ocean and then he wakes up and then we enter the reality of the film so that's one of the more iconic openings yeah. in film history so i i didn't want to gloss over that but just give people a context that it's it, it kind of sets the tone early that this is a weird movie. It's not a, it's not necessarily what you're seeing. It's yeah. some surreal bullshit, but I love surreal bullshit. 
Yeah. And I mean, it was a very bold sort of opening statement about what the film is going to be like. And I, I saw that sort of come through the rest of the movie for sure. And, you know, I also like I have a note about how bold it was to have the movie begin in complete silence. Like I had to like double check and make sure that because I am a uh, your average jock uh, moviegoer and uh, was like, you know, this was something very different for me. Uh, the movie kind of beginning in, in complete silence, like and it's a profound, like complete silence. It's not like it's a quiet beginning, but you hear something. It's like total silence. And that was a very bold kind of way to start. We had the same issue here where I'd yeah. seen the movie, but it's been several years. And when I turned it on, we watched I just bought the uh, Criterion Blu-ray. So we watched it on that and I turned it on. The film starts. There's no noise. And my significant other asked, is it working? And I said, I'm pretty sure it, this is supposed to be silent. And so luckily I was right. I had enough memory of that. So we weren't too lost or too mm -hmm. long. Definitely is a yeah. movie that once it starts, you have to start questioning, is this supposed to be happening? Yeah. And I, you see that sort of maybe a little bit, not, not as specifically as that silence, but like I have a note about like parts of our figures from the next scene or like start like trickling into the scene before it. And like, that I think is a really cool, you know, movie making uh, trick or a little like way to show the absurdist reality of what's going on or unreality of what's going on. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I did like about it. And then, you know, I knew nothing about eight and a half coming into the movie. And so as the movie starts kind of getting a little bit meta narrative, which happens pretty early on, um, talking about like, what was I saying? Are you, are you talking um, about? Is this a film? film critic who gives feedback, which is sort of like a precursor or a preemptive uh, attempt by Fellini to kind of cut off any criticism he's going to get for this movie? Is that what you're possibly referring to? That's exactly what I'm re referring to. And at the beginning of the movie, I wasn't sure like who was giving us this meta commentary about what is fairly clearly about the film itself. And I think the critic mentions like, are you making another depressing film? Uh, making the film a series of gratuitous episodes, uh, amusing due to their ambiguous realism. And I was like, hey, we're talking about this movie right now. Well, I, I'm looking through my notes now, and one of the, I tried to write down a lot of what that critic was saying to Guido, who probably should say the sad yeah. man in this movie is Guido, who is a very conflicted director. He's sad about his creative projects. He's sad about his relationship situation. So, but one of the lines, he said that he was removed from Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness <laughs> and replaced uh, by Sam Raimi. I will say one of the lines that I did write down was the critic saying, talking about the solitude of man in contemporary theater. And I was like, aha, this man knows the premise of our podcast. <laughs> uh, if we were looking for less catchy but more descriptive titles, that would be a pretty good one. There's definitely an element of of you're pointing the finger and then four pointer four pointers four fingers are pointing back at the movie itself, which is obviously on purpose. Like, um, you know, when a movie says in itself that cinema is irredeemably behind all other arts by fifty years, like you know something is is going on. And so I did think like, is there going to be a lot of like emo navel gazing uh, in this movie? And the answer is yes. And then. I tried to write a bit about it because like, I'd like this podcast to be, you know, occasionally funny. And so I wrote, am I opening my heart to you in a car? Because this is dashboard, dashboard confessional. 
Oh, I was, um, I was wondering maybe getting a little too. Yeah, I was wondering because I, I don't think it's navel gazy. <laughs> like I think it's more prone to nostalgia than self pity. Mm -hmm. But the scene you're referring to at the end, when he confesses to this dream girl he's been having visions of, who turns out to be an actress for who's going to be in his movie. Yeah, there is this confessional mm -hmm. where it's just like, I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I, I see what you're getting at now. I mean, I think maybe emo is a little too much, but like, I think when I say navel gazing, I'm like, are we discussing the medium itself? Are we like, is this a book about writing gotcha. books? Is this a movie about making movies? And this is definitely a movie about making movies for sure. And like, that's okay. Like, I do think, like, if you're looking at Academy Awards and things like this, which I think this one for best picture or best, best foreign picture yeah. um so when you i when you look at the history of uh you know films that have been best picture or best foreign picture a lot of them are about like filmmaking because filmmakers do like seeing movies about filmmaking and how hard it is and like the creative genius it takes to make these films and so i i want and especially since this is fellini i was like i'm gonna go into this with an open mind but i do always think about like one, are we at the point that we've run out of ideas such that we have to make a film about making the film or do we have to write a book about writing the book? That was like something I was thinking about as we went through this process of him, you know, dealing with that ennui and like, how do I make this science fiction movie? Within well, that's actually why I chose, I mean, I guess we haven't mentioned it. This is my birthday month choice for yes. our podcast. And I chose it because of, I always think of it as a struggle to create movie where it's not necessarily like writer's block or anything like that but it's just kind of like what's the point of doing any of this why am i even bothering and that's something i've been struggling with my, with my own creative works probably the past year or so where it's just like why bother it's just kind of <laughs> just the odds of it ever getting seen out into the world are just so minuscule this life is so hard the older we get yeah it's like do i really want to devote what free time i have to writing a novel that no one's going to read instead of playing video games or being with friends or or something slightly more yeah, yeah tangibly more satisfying than writing a book but at the same time it's like i don't feel fulfilled if i don't indulge into that creative need so it's kind of like this kind yeah. of masochistic situation where i realize i probably don't want to do this but i need to do it in order to feel some sense of satisfaction it's it's a very complicated approach to things and i don't and i write i i struggle with it a lot because i just don't know whether that's the best use of my time but at the same time it's like what the fuck else am i going to do so i have not really done yeah. any creative projects for i haven't worked on anything creative probably for six or seven months now and i'm hoping to get back into it with like the whole yeah. mentality it's like oh it's it's a birthday it's a new year time to start fresh again so I'm, i was kind of trying to prep myself to start getting back onto this project that I've been kind of keeping notes on for almost two years now, but at the same time, it's just like, Oh, do I want yeah. to do this? So that's why I wanted to watch this. Cause it's, it's been one of my go-to films when I, I feel like I'm struggling with creative issues. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm not alone. But then the, I always yeah. forget that this movie do, <laughs> dives really into more than just creativity, especially with relationship issues and, familial and yeah. religion like it it covers a lot in this movie well i i will say number one you know what you said i think consumption is always a lot easier than creation for sure like and 
I don't think I would definitely not put myself as creative on the level that you are. I am trying to also do some writing and it's, it is always easier to like play Spider-Man too, than it is to sit down and like really try and birth something that you know is going to be terrible and misshapen and garbage, honestly, and have to go through the process of making it not garbage. And so like, I am totally with you on that. And, you know, I, I do, I, I was kind of, you know, kind of half joking, but also somewhat serious on like, we're going to have this story about writing the story, huh? Uh, but it is like a difficult kind of process. And I have a lot of admiration for the people, well, maybe not admiration, but I'm impressed by the people or it's magic to me. Um, before I got into like art, art, like visual art, like visual art was very magical to me, but I've learned that it is a process and, but there are some people that are just very naturally talented at it. And so someone who could sit down and write a story and not have to go through these like birthing pains of like trying to do something creative, like those people really impressed me in the way that like, like cargo cultish almost like I am some backwaters person seeing an airplane for the first time. And I don't even have the language skills or the necessary sort of history or knowledge to understand what I'm, I'm actually seeing. going to disagree. Um, so I'm, I actually I'm, want to disagree yeah. with that mentality. That's like, there's people that are able to create and it's not a struggle. Like, I think that's a lie. I think that's a, uh, I think that's been a lie perpetuated by popular culture. Cause I don't know of any writer who on first draft nails it. And if they think they did, they didn't. Hey, you tell that to Cormac McCarthy and you, we could have heard what he said and then he died, but no, I, I do think there are people like that, that can nail it the first time. I don't think they're super common. I think it is much more common to either for the great works, like you keep working at it and you get better, whether it's like within one work or like your sort of oeuvre of works, like your first movie is not as good as your 10th movie. But I feel like there are, there are a few people who do kind of like naturally take to it in a way that I certainly. No, I, I, think that's a wrong mentality to have and i think that's i think that makes it harder on yourself to think that there's people out there who do this so easily and it's hard for me that means i'm bad at it which is not true because i still remember no that's not well that's, that's how it's coming yeah. across and i want to say you wrote a short story okay. in undergrad that i still think about with the archaeologist who found the britney spears cutout. I still think about that, like probably <laughs> once a week, once a month at the least. Like I think of it often and it's been 20 years. So it's, I really am disappointed to hear you think that you don't have the ability because you do. And just because it's hard, it's supposed to be hard. So I don't, I actually, I actually kind of want you to stop perpetuating that myth because I think the that, myth? that there are people that just naturally tell it's just like, poop out a, a masterpiece with no effort. I don't think that exists. I, and if yeah. anyone says it, I would have a yeah. hard time believing them. And that's not just because I struggle to, yeah. to reach a an output that I think is worthwhile every once in a while. I just don't think it's humanly possible because editing process is yeah. so important and no good edit no good writing can be done without some editing like even it's just to catch typos here and there but just to think that it yeah. flows out magically in a perfect form from the get-go i just 
I re, I, I yeah. just have a hard time accepting that that exists anywhere in the world. I mean, if it does, it is so, so, so rare that I don't think that you yeah. should be comparing yourself to that kind of approach to creativity. Yeah, well, that's what I'm gonna. I, I, I will, I will say that there's part of what you just said that I disagree with in the sense that I'm not saying that there are people that can do it sort of magically. I can't, and that makes me bad. I'm saying there are people that can do it magically. Very few people, but I have to go through a process, and it's a difficult process. And it's not. I'm not always happy during the process because I have oh, no, the process high sucks. standards. <laughs> Yeah, the process sucks. And I'm not saying it's impossible for me or that I'm a bad creative person because I have to go through the process. I'm saying I'm in awe of the people that don't need the process for whatever reason, whether it's like their brain is wired differently or they grew up with like a lot of the things that, you know, kind of put them in a position to understand this in a way that I don't understand it or I have to struggle with oh, it. You to mean like it. Lena Dunham, the writer yeah, of our exactly. generation? Nepo baby. <sighs> <laughs> I don't even know where to go from there, but yeah, no, exactly. Like I think there are people, well, and I will say, I'm not going to mention the author. I just finished this science fiction book that came out, I think in the last year or so. And I read it and I was like, if this person can write a book, I can write a book. Like, like this was, book was so bad. And I, like, I felt like words were not being used correctly. I felt like characterization was all over the place. And I'm like, this person somehow got a publisher to take this book and publish it. And if they can do it, like, certainly I can do it. Um, so, you know, I think there is like, <laughs> it's a sliding scale. And like, when I taught design, I was like, listen, man, like when people talk to me about design before I started doing it, like it did look like magic, but 80% of it, 90% of it is process. Like you do it and you refine and you learn and you fix it and you do it again. It's iterative. Um, and so like I would tell my students, it's not magic, but, and so I've said the exact opposite thing here, but I do think there are people where it does come more naturally to create like certain creative endeavors than for me personally. All right. I'll accept that. And that's not to say I'm bad. Oh, no, no. But it, it yeah. sounded, the way it was coming across is that you were being, it sounded like you're being hard on yourself. That's how it sounded to me. Well, I'm being, so I, I will say that I'm trying to write something about like Bengal in like the 1500s and I bought a book about, and I wanted to talk to you about it because it's like Portuguese, the Portuguese in Bengal. And so I was like, yes, it's both our people. Um, I'll just apologize. I'm going to have to like sit down. <laughs> um, there's and the reason I picked up on this is like, well, part of it, I'm not going to like, I don't want to discuss the entire story because we're talking about Fellini, but like we brought the word Armada into Bengali because they were like, the word for like roving bands of Portuguese, like pirates or militants was like Armada. And then it became Harmad, I think in Bengali. And I was like, there's something here that I've been wanting to write. And this fits in like pretty well. And so like, I bought a book that's like pretty thick on uh, the Portuguese history in Bengal. And I feel like I have to sit down and really do this research and understand like what that history was like and what the words were and like, what we pulled in from port like there's a lot of portuguese words in bengali and then i was watching jeopardy and this guy was like this obviously this older white man was like i'm writing a story about when the chinese and the mexicans met in the 1300s and i was like that didn't happen um so there's a lot of like i don't know like process and some of it's like sort of internally brought on but i couldn't write a story that like i felt like was not 
true to the roots of like what was happening if that was the aim that I was going for, which is sort of mm -hmm. is. But like the point is like I've read like several books and especially the one I just came off of where it's like if this person wrote this book, like anyone can do anything. Yeah. No, I think that's the that's the right mindset to have for sure. Cause there's a lot of dummies out there putting out shit. And you know, I don't think either one of us are dummies. It's just a matter of doing it. Speaking of neither one of us being dummies, I did have a question for okay. you. Italian is really just Spanish with a different accent, right? This is what I picked up from the movie. Well, as I learned in high school Latin, they are all derived from romance languages. They're all derived from Latin. So yeah, there is a lot of familiarity or similarities in the language. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it, it seemed very, very similar. And I'd been hearing a lot of Spanish lately. So, um, you know, I'm semi joking, but like, there was a lot of like overlap. And uh, given Italy sort of right wing government now, I did want to put that a little bit. Oh, but... yeah. And one other thing like I just realized I understand now is, you know, they were laying out pictures of attractive women during, um, I think it was Guido's Italian, uh, Guido's medical mm -hmm. exam. And I, I uh, so my question was, is laying out pictures of attractive women part of an Italian medical exam? But I'm sure they were trying to do movie casting, and then the doctor sort of did the house house call or house visit and um, did that. But I, I really got onto this like tangent of like, do women get men if they during their like medical checkups, like, or do they see more women? Like, what is like an uh, Italian a medical exam exactly supposed well, to be? Well, just going like? off. Terrible, then, terrible stereotypes. Yeah. If someone were to tell me that early 20th century <laughs> Italian medicine involved just staring at photos of beautiful women to, to cure your ailments, I'd believe it. It didn't seem like a completely like out of ballpark no. uh, 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 conclusion to jump No, and to. Fellini loves his women. I put the commentary yeah. on while working today in the background. And I forgot that there is a term that has derived from his work. There is a description for women called Fellini-esque. I actually meant to look that up. Let me bring that up while we're speaking about it. Yeah, I'll vamp. And I, I, I kind of wonder what that means. I was going to joke like, oh, like a Fellini-esque woman in like the way that you would talk about a Rubenesque woman. Uh, but I didn't know it was an actual term. So that's funny. During that that same medical exam, he gets prescribed holy water, I think. And I was like, is holy water part of an Italian medical exam? And then I had a note about, Doc, you got to see me. I got a bad case of the Draculas. And then we should have done this for October, but we should have done a, a Dracula movie. And then we should have discussed what is the ultimate sad man monster? Who is the saddest man monster is the note that I have. And Dracula, I think, is probably up there. And then I had Frankenstein and then also Victor Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster and then Frankenstein himself. But sadly, we have to save it for. Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, get, we'll get to that next year. All right. All the definitions I'm seeing for Fellini-esque are just referring or reminiscent of Federico Fellini. So whoever said in the commentary that Fellini-esque has come to describe <laughs> a certain female body type is apparently full of shit because it is not showing up. But at the same time, Google has gotten really bad. So who knows? Either way, I'm not finding yeah. it right now. But uh, I think when you mentioned so Ruben Esk, I think that's probably a, a decent comparison. Either suck it Google or suck it Criterion Collection. One for you, one <laughs> for you, one for you. Who does the commentary on the Criterion di uh, disc for this? There were three people. Uh, one was a guy who was friend. If it was Wes Anderson, I'm going to be so no, mad. One was a guy who was friends with Fellini and worked on the production as the stills photographer. 
Oh, wow. Another cool. was a film scholar, I believe. She, I can't remember her name, but she had, she, it sounded like she was pretty much reading off an essay. So I'm assuming she's a scholar of some mm-hmm. type. And then there was an Italian man who he may have been a scholar as well. So they are, I can't mm-hmm. remember who mentioned the Fellini esque women, but the, whoever it was, they were apparently wrong. <laughs> Direct your letters to the Criterion Collection, 194 West Broadway Street, New York, New York. I did want to ask you, and you know, I got a sense of this a little bit, and something that I, I'm, I'm actually like really thrilled about in terms of like having seen this movie is now seeing stuff that references this movie and understanding the reference essentially. But like, you know, you've got early on in the movie, they play Rite of the Valkyries and then they play some other like operatic, you know, music that is very famous, whose name I don't know, because this is an area of culture that I'm very uh, ill-equipped to discuss. And how much like other uh, filmmaking sort of takes that into account or is directly referencing eight and a half when they do that. And maybe you have a better sense of like the showed up on the Simpsons and this was their reference to eight and a half or, or something. Well, the thing that that came to mind for me with the constant use of background classical music to kind of convey mood throughout the movie, it reminded me a lot of curb your enthusiasm, which I think some of the music from (laughs) eight and a half actually is the da, 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 da from from curb. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a lot of overlap there. So yeah, I think you're right that this movie definitely, it had far reaching implications to so many movies and TV shows that have come after it. It's, I don't even, we could do an entire podcast just off that, I'm sure, because it's just so pervasive throughout popular culture. And I was even thinking like, is this what the Bugs Bunny cartoons were parodying? Um, But I think those cartoons would have been before this. So probably not, unfortunately, but it does like this is a major hole in sort of my cultural knowledge and so uh i'm eager to see and i could absolutely see larry david being very into this movie for any number of reasons both the ennui and the women and like um the creative process uh, i could see him being a like now i just want to see like look up a bunch of people and see if they were into into this movie in particular. Yeah, I think that'd be a fascinating research project now that you mention it, just to see. I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know, I think like Del Toro loves this film. I mean, obviously we know Wes Anderson does because mm-hmm. it came up in the previous movie we covered. But I think a lot of, yeah, you know, I think a lot of like the hoity-toity upper echelon film directors probably have a hard on for this movie. Yeah. And I was actually, that reminds me, I was going to say when we were discussing that opening scene, like Miyazaki has such a love for a Italy and then be like, especially like Italian engineering. So the Fiat's um, their planes, like during and between the wars, I wonder if like, there's any element of, and especially like, you know, the, the yellow Fiat 500 plays such a big role in castle of Cagliostro. I wonder if like he's a fan. Like, there's a lot of people that now that I have seen this one, especially, uh, I wonder like, uh, you know, is this an influence on them? And when you say this is one of the greatest movies ever made, surely like the influence is is widespread and diffused. oh, most definitely. You know, actually, I have a question I wanted to ask you about the opening dream sequence. Do you remember any anxiety-ridden dreams that you've had in the past? I don't really remember them super well, but like. Like I said, I'm sick. I'm taking medication this week. And I've been having intense, like, 
anxiety dreams every night like for the last like two weeks i think the last one was last night and involved like being in school for some reason but like i was an adult but i was still like getting graded and so you know this is probably one of the key anxieties in my life sort of being graded and measuring up so i'm not entirely surprised like that was the case and i only remember like bits and pieces of it and like i'll wake up like right after each of these dreams and think there's a story here and then wake up in the morning and just have like the barest tendrils of that dream still like remaining and so and then like there's been a couple of times where i like what was i thinking this is a stupid idea for like writing something down um but how about you well, my friend two things mostly because your screen is frozen on gene from bob's burgers the most recent bob's burgers episode was all about gene having a dream that he thought was a, yes. a fantastic song but yes i used to have a recurring anxiety dream where i'd be trying to put a giant contact lens into my eye and i mean like a plate sized contact lens and i would just be struggling trying to fit it in just being like i can't see i gotta put my contact lenses in and i haven't had it for years mm -hmm. now but there's a i think i used to have it maybe once a month or once every couple months in my 20s so i, I i'm sure there is some symbolism to that dream that i could parse out if i spent more time on it but that's not the place but mm -hmm. i was I, this is a kind of a follow-up question do you like talking to people about their dreams because i know that's like a, a, a like a tired joke in tv and movies like oh people talk about their dreams so boring i think it's interesting to hear people talk about their dreams i don't mind it i don't know why some people shit on that i kind of i do work on the philosophies like the philosophy that no one wants to hear my dreams and i really usually don't want to hear people's dreams um and that's because well, two things. One is it has no relation to reality. So it has no effect on anything that's actually happened or going to happen. It did, the, the effect it ha is the effect it has on the person even is like really sort of remote. And I kind of see dreams and maybe this is, we should have paid more attention in like psych 101 back <laughs> in the day or adult psychopathology or whichever psych class we took together. It's like, we talked about pooping out creative like works like it, it, to me it's like the brain sort of like you know doing that maintenance stuff and it doesn't really have an effect on stuff that's you know it's not really it's not anything that like even is influencing the brain or a person's emotion so i like don't in that respect love hearing about it and like as someone who's like really tied to narrative the lack of narrative in in dreams is like a little bit disconcerting and one of the things that I found disconcerting in this movie was that its relationship to narrative structure wasn't always uh, the most solid thing about oh, no. the movie. I, I think it's arguable that there is no narrative structure. Like stuff happens in a linear series of events, but it is not a typical story at all. And I did like it when there was like the, the little like oozes of, yeah, this character from the next scene is like in the present scene and then it kind of switches that I thought was like interesting and creative, but like when we start losing things or, um, you know, some of the dream sequences aren't clear that they're dream sequences until well after mm -hmm. uh, you've gone through them. Like that was a little more, and especially going into the film without, without knowing anything about it. It reminds me of Gabe on The Office when he's showing cinema of the, uh, what is it called? Oh man, cinema of the surreal, oh, cinema of the unsettling. 
And he's like, even narrative provides comfort um, to the viewer. And it didn't get quite to that point. Cinema of the Unsettling is a growing film movement. The most well-known film of the genre is a hour-long shot of a squirrel with diarrhea. <laughs> oh, I hope that's true and not some and weird AI. Far be it for me to say that's... <laughs> yeah, if you said that out of context, like completely with no context, um, uh, it does sound like something that ChatGPT just spits out. Um, but like narrative is a... Uh, something that provides comfort for the viewer or the listener. And when you start leaving narrative behind, you know, it is unsettling or it is like, it makes, at the very least, it makes the viewer or the reader work harder. And this is my problem with like, even with Kurosawa, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, towards the end of his career. And like, he has a movie named Dreams, which I think was his last film. And we start losing narrative structure. Whereas like, his early films are very tightly plotted. Everything happens like for a reason. Uh, every like detail is like mapped out such that it impacts the narrative in a way. And for me as someone who's like that tied to narrative, it can be like a disorienting experience to like watch a movie like this and not know that this is going to be the uh this is like kind of the thesis statement of the movie yeah i, I sort of like the lack of narrative because in essence this story is about this guy's life trying to figure it out and in real life there is no narrative yeah. to one's own life so i that's i kind of like it for that because it does have the, even though it is a surreal movie at times it also is very grounded in reality where it's just like oh shit i don't know what comes next this kind of i i for some reason i i that's find true. that very enjoyable about this because one of the things i did learn in the commentary was that underneath the camera Fellini posted a note that said this movie is a comedy so it was supposed to be funny at times like that was the that was the approach because <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff that happens like you know you know yeah the movie's most part set at a resort spa so Riddy mentioned it earlier it's like all these rich old people drinking holy water thinking that's going to solve their ailments and then there's this like random yeah. shirtless men and bathhouse on like yelling through speaker phones trying to get old like hurt hurting yeah. old people like cattle and no there was actually a lot of funny stuff in this movie and i've like noted some of the stuff that, that came up to me and it's important to realize it's not those aren't like one-offs or uh they weren't mistakes like that was actually part of the film is that it is you know it is yeah funny. i mean his mistress is funny just shows up she's like i'm hungry let's eat and then like talks about food the entire time he's like trying to get his bone on and then uh you know he's he's <laughs> walking through the hotel lobby and all of his production staff trying to talk to me he's just like sidestepping and dancing through him just like la 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 like just dancing through all of his troubles yeah. and issues in life it's kind of like yeah this guy is just trying to avoid any sort of conflict or any sort of situation where he has to make a decision he's just trying to avoid everything and he's just trying to like be dapper as fuck as he does it which i have to say i don't miss much about working in courthouses but i do miss wearing yeah. fitted suits i i haven't worn a suit in since a wedding in 2017 or 2018 so it's been a long time since i've worn a suit so i watching this yeah. and just seeing how marcello mastrioni looked in a suit is like god damn it i need to like 
go buy a fitted suit and just wear it around the house or something. I don't think I had gotten into men's fashion as much as I was like during law school during, well, I got into men's fashion a lot more, I think after undergrad, maybe even towards the end of undergrad, but like, you know, I really, I, I love wearing like a nice suit. I like really love that six, 60s aesthetic. Like I bought a couple of ties to be like, you know, I saw this kind of thing on Mad Men and I like to try it out and see how that What works. did you think about uh, his- And then COVID happened. Oh, I was going to say, what did you think about his sunglasses? Oh, go ahead. Uh, I don't remember his sunglasses. Oh, they're so iconic. Them, like, I'm super... surprised he didn't notice them. Uh, I was like, I was mainlining this movie like no one's business earlier today. So um, I did miss some details, but I thought his suits were amazing. Like I thought overall the fashion was really fantastic and it did kind of reawaken a little bit like this idea that- maybe I should be dressing better than I do lately because I've been working from home since COVID started. And it's like, if I put on a shirt and pants during a day, like uh, that's like, uh, I'm proud of myself for doing that. Yeah, I've definitely become what I never thought I would be. And that's a sweats guy. I wear hoodies and sweatpants pretty much all day while working. I just yeah. look like a dirty sack of shit because like there's stains on it and I just like nothing matches. So it's just like disparate colors. And whenever I step out onto the patio to let my dog go to the bathroom in the afternoon, I just dread a neighbor seeing me and just being like, oh, that's a crazy person. Yeah. I, yeah. Like when I walk the dogs and I'm like, I'm wearing sweatpants and a t shirt that are exactly the same color with a hoodie that's exactly the same color, I feel really bad because I looks like I'm, I like, I tried to do this and it's not that I did. It's that I did not care. And I did not think I'd be going outside. And so I look like this blob of, again, to quote the office, this amorphous blob of khaki <laughs> or whatever. I actually don't wear very much khaki, but I did want to go back and like, there was a couple of things that I really <laughs> liked that I thought were funny or things that I thought were funny. I liked that Guido like immediately forgot Gloria's name. I started like a new sort of role uh, a couple of weeks ago and that's been my life and that's me generally is like someone will tell me their name and I will immediately forget it and it takes me like another three weeks to like figure their name back out and then remember it uh, so I did like stuff like that um, I thought it was funny when the woman was putting her top on and I sure uh, when they go into the hotel restaurant again earlier on in the movie and I think it's because well I'm not sure actually uh, I thought it was because it was you know hotels at th that time like have people sort of living in the hotel and kind of running the the restaurant or whatever the food service kind of thing in it um, but i thought that was like a an odd detail and then uh when uh guido was going to sleep with his mistress uh she was doing her makeup and he was like you should look sluttier and then he tries to like he does her makeup for her and i, I think maybe like the standards of what being a man have changed dramatically since the 1960s because i don't know anything about makeup no i was gonna say well that's actually a really important scene because as we find out later he's trying to get his mistress to look like a sex worker that he and his childhood friends paid yeah. to dance for them on the beach when they're little boys so that was actually a question i was wondering yeah. what i wasn't sure if we should broach or not because i don't know if we have this background but it's like i was wondering it's like i wonder if this is sort of like implied are you talking about my background in sex no I was, I was wondering like i wonder what sort of like <laughs> formative childhood moments like that kind of impact our sexual proclivities or like our attractions as we are adults because 
as we find out yeah like his mistress i think oh man this is this is a real real like the thing is like his mistress is a pretty attractive woman and then like she's putting on mascara and he's like spreading it all across her face to try and just like make her look really disheveled and messy and then we find out later in a flashback sequence we he and his friends sneak out of school and go to the beach and there's this uh, there's a, a prostitute yeah. who lives in this little shack on the beach and they pay her and she starts like dancing to a Roomba for them just like she doesn't do anything explicit she like pulls her shirt down to show her shoulders and then like the kids are just like whoa but like that's yeah. just, it's obviously in the history of this character like a really formative moment in formative. It, it, like his sexual identity and so i i thought that was a pretty interesting like yeah in and of itself the scene where he tells his mistress to look more slutty it's kind of like well that's kind of a fucked up thing to say kind of but then we find out it's like oh no he's just trying to make her look like this woman that he had a his like sexual awakening to when he was like a boy so it's kind of like you know yeah. i just thought it was interesting how Fellini depicted like this impactful moment as a kid still kind of resonating for this 43 year old man. And I mean, the, the, the mistress and the, the sex worker, very different women. The sex worker was a very robust lady and I hadn't connected those together uh, necessarily Uh, again, had mainlined this movie, (laughs) but yeah, like, I think like, I think if there are two people unqualified to discuss like sexual imprinting and people in humans, like as you grow up, like it's probably us, but it is like so much of this movie is that journey about his ideal woman and maybe the ideal woman. And, you know, we're trying to, we see like the genesis of that for him. And uh, I, I don't know enough to like comment one way or the other, like in terms of filmmaking or in terms of like psychology, but it's obvious that like, this is like a, the, the, the er moment for him. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that ties into that, you know, the lady he finds at the end. What well, makes me wonder about my attraction to Ginny Lewis. It's like, does that stem from when I saw her as a child in the wizard in 1989, when I was also a little kid, I was like, Oh wow, look at that cute redhead. And then like 13 years later, when I discover Rilo Kylie, it's like, Oh, Hey, look at this attractive redhead. What? It's the same person. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of, I don't, that's, <laughs> that's my weird like, connection I mean, for when I see that scene it's like huh I wonder if watching The Wizard this terrible movie that's nothing but Nintendo product placement I wonder if the female lead in that imprinted on me as a child and has continued on to this day do you think it also has uh, The Wizard also influenced my sexual attraction to Mario it's, it's why I masturbate with a power glove <laughs> um, no I will say like Princess Leia like before I, you know, obviously those movies came out before I was, we were born, um, but they were like early sort of like early things that I watched as a child. And I don't know the influence that, that Carrie Fish, young Carrie Fisher had on my sexual awakening, which is not a phrase I thought I would be saying this week, but. <laughs> I got, I try to keep you on your toes. <laughs> but Daisy Ridley, call me. Uh, Rose Tico, call me. Like, it's definitely still, still there for sure. Jennifer Aniston dressing up as Leia in Friends, call me. Like it's 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 all still there. You just there. have a fetish for alien women. Yeah, I guess that's what that boils down to. Oh damn it! What is that movie? Uh, the one with the lady with the three breasts. Total Recall. Yes, Total Recall. That that was gonna be my great poll, and uh, I couldn't do it. Uh, I I couldn't. <laughs> 
couldn't pull it out. That's what he said. I, I, um, I'll, I'll be pedantic, though. She's a mutant. She's not an alien. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, well, I know one of our know. listeners would is probably saying that to herself right now, so I want to make sure that she and I are on the same page with our yelling recall knowledge because or... I, I became a fan of that movie thanks to her, so I want to make sure that I do right by our Total Recall fan listener. Friend of the show. Uh, I, I did. That does also bring up something that I noticed that the women, especially at the beginning of the movie, were like children, essentially, not in the sense that they were young, but they their immediate needs were like, I'm hungry or his mistress eating uh, chocolates or candy and reading a goofy comic book. Uh, I noticed that. detail. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because um, I think I'm, I want to jump to another one of the more famous scenes in the movie where it's near the end and Mm-hmm. Guido walks in from the snow into this building, which we had seen earlier was like a childhood home for him. But in this dream sequence, it's the mm-hmm. home for him and this entire harem of women. And it's a little confusing about who's in it because yeah. it's, it's sort of implied that most of the women there are women either he's had sexual relations with, sexual relations with, or wanted to have sex with. But then there's also like his mom mm-hmm. and his wife's best friend who kind of plays a pivotal role later in the film and uh and mm-hmm. the the aforementioned sex worker from the who danced on the beach like it's just this giant collection of all the women in his life and there's a pivotal moment in the scene where they try to he tries to banish a a dancer upstairs which i guess is like once you go upstairs you never come back and one of the characters says oh you're over 30 now you're banished to the attic and so it's funny that you say that all the women early on in the film or like the mistress and some of the actors that he's working with are childish because that scene later on kind of shows that once these women get too old or i think probably the correct phrase is once these women become more mature and probably grow out of his bullshit he just gets rid yeah. of them. And so I think that's kind of a, I should say that in the scene, the women all ultimately have an uprising and he tries to put it down by whipping them. So it's a really weird scene. It's it's comical, but also when you take a step back, it's like, oh, this is really fucked up and, and misogynistic. But it's, yeah. you know, I don't think that's supposed to be interpreted any other way. Like, I think you're supposed to see this to be like, oh, he's a shitty guy. Like, I don't think there was any other intended yeah. reason for that scene other than the show. Oh, Guido's a piece of shit. Uh, you know, we didn't discuss it when we talked about sort of that sexual imprinting sort of discussion, but... I, I would say that men have like mother complexes and granted, again, my uh, psych training is those two classes we took in undergrad and watching Frasier like a couple <laughs> of times through and definitely of those two buckets, the Frasier is more uh, fresh on my mind given that it happened more recently. But I do think there's an element of that and it becomes obvious that like this is like his amalgamation of sort of like women, his conception of women and to tie it back to our discussion about Taylor Swift and Tom Hiddleston, like I do think there is like element of older men dating younger women. And I don't know anything about Tom Hiddleston. Hopefully he's a great guy and I don't have to feel bad about being into his body shape or acting, but older men dating younger women who will put up with their bullshit until they've grown up enough to like know yeah, better. I, I will be devastated um, if it ever comes out that Tom Hiddleston sucks. Like I, I want him to be a good person. Do you know the largest age difference between you in a relationship? Mine was, I think, five or six years. I was 30 and I think she was 25. And 
it was noticeably different. Like I didn't expect it. Like it, it, we only dated for a few weeks, but it ended up being yeah. like really, it wasn't boring, but like we are definitely at two different levels. Like just maturity wise, yeah. like it was thing like it was, it got to the point like she wanted to hang out every day and I wanted to go hang out with one of my friends. Like just nothing, not like I blew her off or anything. She was like, oh, do you want to make plans for tomorrow? It's like, oh no, I have plans to go see somebody. And, like she got really upset with me later on. It's like, well, this is not much. It's like, yeah, we went to a Korean bakery and I was just like, hey, I just want to slow things down a bit. And she started crying. And I think she said, why does this keep happening to me? So when I heard that, my mental, mentally, I was like, uh-oh. And like, she thought I was breaking up with her, yeah. which was not my goal. I just wanted to be like, hey, this is getting too much too fast. But she took it as a breakup and it ultimately yeah. became a breakup because of yeah. that. Because, you know, we she dropped me, she dropped me off at my home and she's like, I need to know yes or no. And I was like, yes or no, what? She's like, yes or no. And I was like, you need yeah. to tell me what the question is. I'm not going to answer this. And it's like, and so <laughs> the answer is for you. Yeah, but it was just one of those things. It was like one of those really transformative moments where it's just like, oh, I could never date somebody substantially younger than me ever again. And I was just like, how do older yeah. creepy men do this? Like, how does a 60 year old man date a 20 year old? Like, what the fuck? Like, I know there's a sexual component to it, but it's like, how do you even tolerate being around the person? I was like, say, there, you... There's not a lot of talking going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, movies, it's obviously just, just a Tom. physical thing. But then why the hell is a 20 year old attracted to like a shriveled old man? Like all those Oh, I can't remember, like, uh, all those weird old rich men who own, like, NBA franchises. It's just like, I guess it's just the money part of it, but, like, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of those mysteries of life I've never been able to figure out. It's not like you have someone very specific yeah, in mind. Uh, no, like, but you look at, uh, like... Redstone. Yeah, What's his name? Not Abner Redstone, but... It's, uh, ah, fuck it. It's some old, creepy old man who's just, like, in his... I'm sure we could pick like a thousand. Yeah, examples it's like these old men are in limos. Like, it's like, um, give me yeah. a blue job. It's like, oh god, like it's, it's just one of those things. A part of the world. It's just like I don't. This world, this our species is not worth saving. Sometimes, I guess, is ultimately what I'm trying to get at. Well, I'm sure, like, and I got into not into, but I was interested in learning more about evolutionary psychology. Um, I kind of think it's mostly bullshit, but. I'm sure there's like an evolutionary psychology kind of reason for that. Like they would have a reason for it in terms of like older man is probably better established, has more money, like can provide better for a woman whose like goal is to tie a man down and to have that man raise her children and yeah. things like that. I don't, that's not what I believe unless you talk to my men's rights. Yeah. Let's, friends. let's take a um, hard no. right turn and get some listeners. We'll go the Joe Rogan yeah. route and we'll have millions of dollars by the end of the year. <laughs> it's if it's worked for that talentless bum, it should work for us. No. And I think I've had like a similar gap in, in dating people like five, four to six years. Like I can't remember what it was exactly. And I think to, again, to tie it all back to the beginning of the conversation, uh, my, argument against like that kind of relationship even at that point was like what am i going to talk to this girl about fucking taylor swift like back when she was like more like a uh you know sort of a country star bubble i my impression of her was like bubblegum pop kind yeah, of thing i think that's accurate and it's not i mean i don't know it's just like what do you talk to a person like with that kind of age gap about necessarily in terms of relationship and i was just going to say like you know in Mad Men, what do roger and joan talk about like 
what could possibly be on their minds that they are meeting in the middle other than like the sexual kind of component of their well, relationship. At least those characters so, could talk about I mean, work, I get it, I like guess. work gossip and everything. But you can see yeah. in this movie when the when he's with his mistress, she's talking at him and he's just like looking at a newspaper or like ripping pieces of paper to make it into like this tiny little fan. Like he's totally checked out and she just either doesn't notice or doesn't care. Yeah. But it's obvious that he's just like, you know, has less than zero yeah. interest in what she's talking to him about. Well, and that again, I mentioned like the changing ideals of like manhood uh, and I put that in quotation marks. Uh, that this movie sort of suggested or illustrated to me. And I was literally eating like a Halloween Snickers while his mistress was reading that that goofy comic and um, eating candy. And I was wearing like probably like a Spider-Man t-shirt or something like that. And it's like, I'm a 40 year old man and I'm basically the woman in this mistress relationship <laughs> right now. And so the ideals of manhood have really changed uh, since the 60s. Granted, like he's put together and wearing a suit and I'm in pajama pants and a Spider-Man t-shirt. So whatever. But um, it really does like kind of late. And even like when I watched Mad Men, I'm like, are they expecting me? And I think in Mad Men, like a lot of the writers were women. It was really and people got the wrong idea from the show. A lot of dumb people got the wrong idea from the show in the same way they got the wrong idea from Breaking Bad in that Don Draper or Walter White are like these figures to admire, whereas like. Uh, they both like fucked up their lives and like Don Draper is like in this shallow kind of thing where he's like he's like having these affairs to like figure out the meaning of life and not really able to grasp it but there's a sense of like a man is Don Draper who sleeps around and wears these suits and you know he messed up his perfect crisp white um, collared shirt so he has like a, a stack of them in his desk drawer that he can pull out and uh, I am definitely not that man. Granted, like they didn't have COVID to worry about in the 1960s, but this idea of like what a man should be, um, I think is very different and not to like always have to pull this back to like a Marvel movie or something like that. But when we look for like our ideal uh, man now, it's like Tony Stark or it's Thor in the sense that they're playing video games and they're eating Doritos and they're like, just like us. And it it really does show like, Kind of what we and i think some of that's a good thing because i think there's this level of like toxic masculinity that guido is showing here and don draper shows that um isn't necessarily a part of the or maybe consciously or subconsciously is wait let me let me, let me marshal my thought here but that being like a f slubby kind of man is the opposite of being like the toxic masculine sort of Don Draper. Type. I think there's a very strong argument for the theory that the misunderstanding of the concept of an anti-hero and interpreting it as a role model could be at the, yeah. at the core of a lot of male right wing issues in America today, like Tyler Durden, yeah, Donald Trump. like Tyler people <laughs> like totally misun misinterpreting the the point of Fight Club and like you mentioned Breaking Bad. Like yeah. people see these characters who are not created to be 
an archetype of masculinity in people seeing like, oh, Walter Wright's a badass, or like seeing Goodfellas and being like, oh yeah, yeah. I want to be a mobster. It was like, no, that's not the point of these movies. It's just you're taking the wrong messages. I mean, away. that's why I got into the mob, but yeah, no, yeah, and back when I was like commenting a lot on Twitter or Reddit, one of the things I would say like a lot was we should make media courses mandatory in like high school or college because people don't understand the media they're consuming. And it's leading to things like people idolizing Don Draper or Walter White. And it's leading to things like, I think Joe Rogan has, you know, is onto something here, which I think ultimately is leading to part of this like appeal of like someone like Donald Trump. I don't think it's the, I think a lot of it's just like, racist guy is saying racist things and i am also a racist oh, no uh, so i'm happy to hear someone say them but i do think there's a lot of people like misunderstanding the media they consume like fundamentally and you know that to me is like one of the obvious signs that we are in the worst timeline and i do think there is like this you, you're you have to have these mental components to understand that like fiction is fiction and what the creator of that fiction is saying is not necessarily the plain text of of what you're reading or seeing mm -hmm. or consuming um, a rapper can rap about something and not be endorsing it but instead is like talking about the flip side of of whatever they're talking about as an example and all the tv examples you just mentioned and things like that and so yeah it's really really awful and i think that's i mean i i fellini here is definitely not saying that guido's life is fantastic oh no there's um, nothing redeeming about his life like he's he's yeah. he's hiding his mistress in a shitty hotel near his and then he invites his wife to visit and then while out with his wife the mistress runs into them in a very funny awkward scene he is responsible for a movie that there's a scene like that in seinfeld too where george constructs the mist like his girlfriend and mistress meeting each other so i feel like there's even more sort of evidence for uh some kind of larry david seinfeld eight and a half oh connection. i believe that yeah but like you know nothing works out for him in the end like the the end of the movie jumping to that it's him it's a dream sequence where he's at a press junket to promote the movie at this giant scaffolding that's mm -hmm. been built that in the middle of a field that has no purpose. And all these reporters are asking yeah. questions and he crawls underneath the table and you don't realize that you find out afterwards, but one of his, uh, one of the, his coworkers, someone who's working on the production staff hands him a gun and the character shoots himself in the head. And then you find out he didn't he didn't mm. actually commit suicide but what ha what happened was that it's like metaphorically committing career suicide because he announces that he's not going to make this film and so the producer who's like oh yeah. your career's over and all the actors are mad at him but at the end he's trying to tell his wife like he's trying to reconcile with her and say you know i i do need you i because there have been couple scenes earlier in the on where early on where they or i guess midway through the movie where they're having their tense conversations about separating and at one point guido talks to his wife's best friend is saying is like oh is that guy that came with you i think he's in love with her do you think she's in love with him and the best friend's like oh no you're not going to get out of this easily by 
hoping that she leaves you for someone else is like you need to either like get your shit straight mm-hmm. or you need to leave her so like you yeah, know yeah. no one's really coddling him at all like i guess maybe the mistress but the mistress is kind of in her yeah. own world but like nothing about yeah guido's lifestyle is redeeming or makes me think oh i want to live like this aside from the suits like he just looks so good in those suits but i wouldn't want to go through all this yeah. even if it was a very fashionable well-fitting back black suit like spider-man um i i don't think they're necessarily related directly dressing well and and toxic masculinity oh i would definitely definitely not i would give up the suits for i i mean i'm sure there's some like level of of this part of culture is influencing that part of culture but i would give up the the well-made suits for uh giving up toxic masculinity oh sure i was gonna say on that serious note tom should i pluck my eyebrows and then draw them in i mean you can but i i'll need you Um, to make your eyebrows look a little more slutty (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of like plucked eyebrows in this movie and i've got very wild man south asian eyebrows so that definitely came to mind well i wanted to go through a few of the quotes that i wrote down and then a few of the questions that i have okay. for you from this movie so one okay. of the quotes that i think that you and i can relate to because i'm pretty sure we've already do- gone on to this topic in previous episodes but there's a line i believe it's when guido is speaking to a cardinal in a steam bath but someone tells him, you're not the man you used to be either. And that's kind of really a, a, one yeah. of the core themes of the movie. It's just kind of like, it's implied that Guido is a successful director who has made good films in the past. And a lot of his stress is, yeah. he's stressing over making a new movie in and of itself, just making it. And then to stress over, will it yeah. be as good as my previous work? Like, will my creative output be as good as it was? And I think that's, even aside from creativity, that's something that everyone thinks about when they get older. Is like, am I still useful? What am I doing? Like, yeah. have I kind of well? And I think maxed yeah, out already. You're kind of answering that question about why do these older men date younger women? And it's trying to recapture this like youthfulness of unlimited possibility of doors not being shut behind you, of maybe your best creative time. And so I do think there is like. It's not necessarily reasoning I agree with, but reasoning about why, you know, why someone in their 40s would want to date someone their daughter's age, which is explicitly what happens with with his friend Guido or Mario. It's his friend who's dating, who he's dating a Guido meets the girlfriend. He thinks at first it's the guy's daughter. Then we find out, no, it's the daughter's roommate from college. I was going to say, I think we just have our first profound answer for one of these stupid ass questions that I bring up in the episode. So thank you. (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's going to, I don't know. I don't know the efficacy of my answer, but it did come to mind, but I'm going to jump into your list really quickly here and say, I have stopped myself from saying there's a Mario and a Guido in this movie and how proud I am of waiting until now to say it. And I had a note saying, just need a Luigi. And then the mistress mentions, I think the mistress mentions Luigi. Like Is her that her husband? Husband? I think so. And I was like, hurrah! We got the trifecta of Italian names. Mario, Luigi, and Guido. So this eight and a half is really the secret origin of the Mario brothers, if anyone's interested. Yes. Maybe he's the son. Maybe he's the director. I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, 
I also had a note that I was going to, I can find a way to make this part of the Goof Troop universe <laughs> uh, based on that comic she's reading. Um, I will say, if you haven't played it on Switch, Mario Wonder, really good, a little psychotic, um, really worth I was like, these are the two most stereotyped Italian names. And then I just knew Luigi to be in it. And they brought it up. And I was like, I had just like a brief second when he called, when the first time they used the name Guido. And I was like, wait, that's a slur, isn't it? And I was like, oh, no, wait, it's a name that has been made into a slur. So oh, I didn't realize it was a slur. But yeah, I guess I, I have heard that before. Now you mention it. If you ever need to know uh, a slur for a people, talk to me. <laughs> All right. Well, another line I wanted to briefly talk about was, I think this may have been the Cardinals well, where he tells Guido, mm -hmm. why should you be happy? That is not your task, which I feel like is such the perfect microcosm of Christianity. So I wanted to see what you thought about that line, whether it resonated with you at all. I mean, it's kind of the human condition too, right? Like, and it's also what you brought up in terms of consumption versus crea creation. I know I had these discussions with my parents, like especially post 9-11, where I was like, what's the point of living in this dumb country where people don't like me uh, and I have to struggle, you know, do as well as a white man would be, like the, a white man equivalent of myself would have to do. And they would be like, yeah, but you've got to like make it better and stuff. And I was like, fuck that. Like, I just want to live like a life where I enjoy myself and things are good. And maybe like I help out the people that are like close to me. I don't see the point in like sacrificing my life to do something greater than me. People have that urge, that calling, but I don't see the need to do that myself, which in some ways is like a terrible thing to say. And in some ways I think is a completely reasonable thing to say. People should be able to like live their one life and enjoy it. Like we don't get to do this again. They're not, there's not a do-over. You don't get to like get the things you sacrificed back, whether that's like enjoy, you know, and you see, you look at the lives of a lot of like people who led civil, civil rights movements or led the independence of their people or their country, and they were like terrible parents and they didn't like spend time with their children or cheated on their spouses or like whatever. And it's like, why should that be Guido's task? You know, or what, why should not being happy be Guido's task? Why should for example, making a film be his task if that's not what he wants. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting topic because that's something I struggle with a lot in context of my legal career because my job now, mm -hmm. it's really, it's like, I'm kind of outside, I'm in the legal system, but I'm outside of it where I just get hired by law firms to go through and pretty much I just look at company emails that are related to whatever the lawsuit's about. So I don't work for either side, which I sort of like, because I can kind of keep some mm -hmm. moral distance from it, where it's just like, well, I'm not representing these shitty companies who are doing, you know, whatever social ill. I, I find evidence that hurts them. I find evidence that helps them, but like, I'm not making the arguments that they're using to defend themselves. But my early yeah. career was I, I my first internship was at a domestic violence nonprofit, which I got into because my yeah. friend worked there as a grant writer. And she was like, Oh, yeah, you can come hang out like we'll take you on. like we don't have attorneys on staff, but we go to court all the time. So I started going to court and sitting in on protective order hearings. So it's just all about like domestic violence where intimate partner violence for people just who are supposedly in love or beating the crap out of each other so that was heinous 
And so then I went to another nonprofit and I eventually, my first trial was getting a protective order for someone against their abusive ex-boyfriend. So I, I did a lot of, I mostly was just sitting and listening and learning. I didn't, I wasn't overly actively involved because I wasn't trained to help these people, but like, I kind of just was seeing how it worked in a legal context, but that was draining as fuck. Cause it's like, Oh man, this is way more pervasive than I ever knew. I mean, luckily I was always in a safe familial environment where no one was hitting each other, but it's far more common yeah. than I had any idea. And then I became a mediator and I was mediating landlord tenant disputes, which in essence were people getting evicted and just kind of negotiating the terms of the eviction, like how soon it would happen and how much money they would owe. And you just kind of see like, oh, there's mm -hmm. a ton of people who can't afford to live in a home. And like, so that was just demoralizing. And then I took a, a non, yeah. well, oh, no, yeah. I'll just say, then I was working as a patient advocate and just hearing yeah, how terrible, like how much people, well, Oh, I forgot I was a disability attorney. So everyone's struggling trying to get disability payments. Like I did a lot of my early career was trying to help people in really shitty situations. And like it definitely took its toll after a while. Like we're just like, I can't do this. I can't listen to somebody crying and yelling at me on the phone. Like it just got to the point where it just destroyed me. And I, I, so I get where you're getting at. It's like trying to kind of protect yourself in the process. But at the same time, it's just like, well, should yeah. I be doing that though? Because I have the ability to try and help people, but it's like, then at the same time, it's like, does anyone actually get help? Like, do I, am I actually helping these people by what I'm doing? So like, it's, it's a tough yeah. call where it's just like, you know, as it is now, I am not stressed. No one's yelling at me, but at the same time, I'm not really helping anybody either. So it's kind of like this weird balance. It's just like, I don't know if there is a happy medium between the two, but I think you're right. It's just like, it's, you know, I think a lot of people yeah. are conditioned to think you're never supposed to be happy, which I, I, I do agree with you. It's just like, you do need to protect yourself and give yourself some enjoyment where you can, because in essence, happiness is not the default setting for humans. I, I think you touched on this, but to say it more explicitly a little bit, you got to balance like the psychic damage you're doing to yourself. And then you also have to like, think about being open-hearted in like kind of the, the broadest sense of that word taking all of this in and then it it impacts you as a person. I uh, clerked in magistrate court uh, in Georgia. And so I also saw like lots of things that I wish I hadn't mm -hmm. seen um, to some degree in that experience. And it it's tough. And I did like some, like I worked at like a childhood nonprofit and most of my work was, was more related to, you know, statistics and things like that. So, but uh, we definitely did a few house home visits and things like that. And like, that was tough to go through. And, you know, you always I, are not always, I've had the experience of like, uh, meeting people that are doing like social good stuff, but that have kind of separated it or hardened themselves to it. And it comes off as like very like callous or things like that. And even like, I, you know, as someone who's had like a lot of medical stuff, I've had my fair share of doctors that have felt very callous. Uh, when I've interacted with them and something that's like, you know, feels like very important to me, but I'm like the 10th person, that, person they've seen that day. And it's like, I'm not all, like, I, I'm not always big enough to understand or to like be able to incorporate this, but they need to harden themselves because if they took on the hurt of like everyone that they dealt with, they wouldn't be able to 
do their jobs they wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning and so like balancing like being able to do good versus like uh the impact that like dealing with the shit, so mm -hmm. to speak um in quotation marks uh yeah it's 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 tough i i i get it and i i don't have a good answer even now like i had a glib answer you know in the 2000s of why should i work harder when you know society sort of hates me yeah. um but um you know I, I i get the other perspective but i also understand that like i don't think i'm a person that could like and i'm thinking of specific historical figures here why should i get assassinated work very hard deny myself a lot of things and then get assassinated for trying to you know push forward social justice yeah no it's it's tough i don't know well <laughs> this has been a real dour episode of uh I like, uh, you our, know this is podcast. what i wanted for our podcast yeah. though, is kind of get into these uncomfortable yeah. conversations at times you know it's there's ten thousand yeah. movie podcasts but how many of them go into these avenues and i have uh, a couple of funny question mark things to say what here does it would, would, would oh no i has. i've done with, um for some definition of funny. i'm done with yeah. quotes so i'll to transition into that, okay. I'll, I only have one weird hypothetical question for you. So in the commentary, sure. I learned that the working title for this movie was The Beautiful Confusion. So there's The Beautiful Confusion, ultimately mm -hmm. eight and a half. So that relates to the fact that this was, mm -hmm. Fellini considered this his eighth and a half film that he had directed. He had done eight, uh, yeah. seven previous like features and done a short film. And so I wanted to ask you, what would you title an autobiographical work? I mean, just to go to, was it Beautiful Confusion was the working yeah, title? Yeah, Beautiful Confusion. Uh, I mean, that is as appropriate for this movie as it made perhaps even more on the nose than Eight and a Half is. That's a good question. I don't know, if I were to title my autobiography, it'd probably be like, I tried or I tried or tried, try or tried, present tense or past tense, but you know, whatever I did, like I did try to give it my best and like do the work and try to help people and, and try to not be like actively evil um, in society, which is not always easy today. And, uh, you know, I think that would be, I think it's probably like a very cliched title. And so probably would have to run a search on who else has used it. But I gave my best effort is is what I want to like encapsulate in a in a title and um that's what it is. How about you, my friend? I don't think I have a good answer. The thing that comes to mind for me maybe be I'm not as mean as I look cuz I I'm still under the impression that people think I'm <laughs> I'm very mean looking and like standoffish and aloof, which you know, that's not entirely untrue, but the older I've gotten, the more I've learned that it's due to social anxiety. So it's not like a, a conscious choice on my part to be that way. So that I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough because I don't think I've really done anything definitive to have like a catchy title that people could be like, oh, I get it. You know, so it's just kind of like, or I could just yeah. do something stupid like tall man tales. But even then, six foot four is not that tall. Like it's the average population. Yeah, but. Tell that to the entire NBA. Yeah, you know, Yao Ming would Tom. just be like, oh, fuck off, dude. Like, you know, so it's, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of a. I was your size when I was 10. Yeah, and then he like palms me and um, just carries me around by my head. Yeah. Well, which is another thought I had 
there's a part early on where where, where <laughs> where's child guido has a wine bath and then he's carried by a woman to bed and then during the harem scene like it kind of yeah. happens again where like he's in a he's in a giant towel and the women collectively are like carrying him to bed i miss the fact that i'll never be carried to bed again like that's such a comforting moment in childhood when you just like fall asleep somewhere and then you wake up the next morning in your bed and you're like how'd i get here that's never going to happen again i kind of that's it's sad to think about yeah well physically i was going to suggest that um if you can have a boombox playing love love lift us lift us us where let me try that again love lift us up where we belong uh, i would be happy to carry you to bed but it's not only the physical act of carrying someone to bed but also waking up and realizing someone has done something nice for you that you did not process kind of at that time if i understand you correctly. yeah no i think i should probably call my mom that's, that's what makes me think <laughs> i had a couple of stray thoughts that i wanted to kind of uh, uh, throw out there um just very quickly uh, and I know I say this all the time, but Americans sure are shitheels in this movie and uh, international movies, huh? Were there any Americans in this movie? I do think there were. I think when he was getting interviewed, there was a woman speaking in English about, what did they say? Like, do you feel like your movies are more Italian or more Catholic and all your movies are like leaning or slanted to the left? And so that was like the most like American thing you could say in the 60s, I think. And it kind of reminded me of Faulty Towers when there's an American guest and he and Faulty get into it. Um, except, of course, Faulty is also an asshole and then is arguably the bigger asshole by the end of the end of the episode. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Going back to the commentary, there was a conversation somebody had about how Fellini considered himself apolitical and he hated these questions about whether he was left or right, which must have, uh, that makes which sense, must have been yeah. a very kind of like tough question for him because he grew up during the uh, Mussolini regime. And I read a biography about yeah, him. Yeah. He served, but I think he was always trying to desert. So like, I don't think he was fascist at all. But at the same time, I don't think he was progressive either. Yeah. I think he is kind of just kind of going to the Guido mentality. Just like, I just want to do my thing. I don't. And I think he probably, well, I guess we didn't even touch on it, but like a lot of people consider Guido or Marcello Mastrioni in all the different films that he did for Fellini. People have kind of boiled it down that he is the Fellini cipher. So when you see Marcello on screen, you should just assume oh, that it is full, it's supposed to be Fellini, which yeah. is not absolute, but it, I think there's a lot. Yeah. At least in this film, he's he's obviously, and so it's interesting to to hear that he's a. Uh, and I, I wonder, like, when we see that, like, you know, kind of career retrospective of of Wes Anderson or someone like that, are we going to pick out someone like Owen Wilson and say, like, he? And obviously, it's not Owen Wilson, but is he that cipher for Wes Anderson? Yeah, and then what you mentioned about kind of, you know, growing up in in fascist Italy and being kind of having served in the, I guess, in the military, but also not being a fascist. Um, I think we do have to watch Porco Rosso after this because it also kind of touches on Italian fascism and our main character being outside of it. And the line in that movie, at least in English, is uh, better a pig than a fascist. So uh, maybe that might be thematically related. And then just a last couple of thoughts. You mentioned last week if there's an arty film on the list and it's 
our list of movies to watch for this podcast. It's, it's one that you put on there. And then I disagreed. But if this is a yardstick, then I think maybe you're 100% yeah. <laughs> correct. Because uh, I, I, you know, I, if I were to say like, oh, like Tokyo Story by Ozu is like this very quiet film. And that's already, I would say, yes, like that's in my wheelhouse. But like already like very indie and leaving the sort of the narrative structure behind, then maybe, maybe not so much. And then, you know, like, and I've talked about this off mic with you, but I'll say it on mic that one of the thing, one of the podcasts that I listen to that really influences how I come to this podcast is the complete guide to everything. And there, the two hosts kind of are friends, but they bicker on camera quite a bit, um, or not on camera, on mic quite a bit uh, as part of their like comedy part of the the podcast. And sometimes I think we should do that, but then I also realize that we're too close to like bicker on even jokingly uh that much on mike that well, i don't think that's uh, in either of our nature for one thing yeah. but I actually, that was crossing my mind earlier too it's like I, i'm waiting for the movie that you and i are just diametrically opposed on opinions on i'm i'm i don't <laughs> i don't know what movie that will be but i'm very curious to see to yeah. find out when that happens what movie is going to just totally put us on polar opposites you're captain america i'm iron man and we are on opposite sides of this uh of this film maybe that'll be the movie that would be perfect symmetry i would i would love if uh civil war is a movie that we come to each i i don't care enough about any almost any of those marvel movies to uh to to have an opinion that strong but um, it would be a nice little bit of symmetry if that were the case. But I do have a note, and this was, I think, written about two-thirds of the way through the movie, that um, our relationship isn't adversarial, but it could be after watching this. <laughs> I was really wondering, like, I, I wasn't sure. I, I told you before we started recording that at one point during the movie, I did think to myself, he may not like this. I didn't. I don't know what the mo moment was, but I just remember <laughs> thinking, like, yeah this this may not be his thing so you know it happens no and and uh honestly i thought this whole uh episode was going to be us discussing the pizza place in atlanta which i don't know whether it's still open or not but is also named fellini's and if i'm if i remember correctly is named for uh the director is that is that I right i think they chose it because it's just a fun sounding italian name i don't know if, uh, how well yeah it's not going to be <laughs> kurosawa unfortunately but uh for some reason i thought you were going to talk about antico but then i remembered oh yeah there's a chain called fellini so i feel like we went there a lot in oh yeah because it was cheap and good it was a great it's a great place i would yeah. kill for a place like that now we shouldn't i i'm kind of i, I gotta talk to some people in atlanta and see if it's still open but uh we should go back Record an episode. In I'm Fellini's. pretty sure it's still there. It was, it, I went. That was one of the places I went to driving through a few years ago. If it were to shut down, I'll be devastated, mm -hmm. even though I don't live there anymore. I don't hate you for having watched this movie. I'm actually, I think there's a lot of stuff that I liked in it, and especially kind of from a visual perspective and the comedy, which was, you know, because I feel like maybe less so in the last decade or so, decade or so, but comedy has to be like, so obviously marked in something that's not like supposed to be like funny per se like you have a laugh track or it has to be so like over the top that it's hilarious and maybe that's a condition of the society we live in now where things are so stupid that it's got to be so much stupider in our fiction uh to even be like remotely funny but 
him like forgetting the 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 woman's name i thought was like hilarious and i love that i love these little bits of like the next scene kind of bleeding into the the, the present scene um so i'm really glad i watched this movie um would i go out of my way to watch it again probably not but um i'm really glad i saw it what? We're too nice to each other for uh, the podcast's good, but that's where I yeah. ended up. You know, it's always, having different opinions is always good for conversation. But, well, you know, let's yeah. bring this train into the station, closing it out like we close most episodes. Yes. What can we learn from this sad man, Guido? I just I can't get over being, Guido being a slur. Um, for me personally, uh, I think it's a very similar well, there's two big things that I think we came out of this with, that I personally think we came out of this with. One is these like flings and stuff feel like they might be fulfilling for Guido, but in the end, they're not, it seems like to me. And then also like this, how difficult the creative process is. And to make something good, you do have to go through this process and most people i think that are trying to create things want to make good things you know and they have the standards to back that up um, maybe reality television is mostly outside this purview but if you're making like a fictional thing like you want you know you're someone who like if you're writing a novel you're someone who's read novels and you have like a standard for what should be good and you've got to push past that feeling of like this is absolute dog shit, and i need like i need to stop so that's what I pulled from this. How about yourself, my friend? I had one line in my notes I didn't bring up because I didn't think there was enough to really merit a decent conversation. But at one point in the movie, Guido does say, mm -hmm. I just wanted to say something simple. And I think that kind of serves as a yeah. microcosm for the film because he really is the cause for all the complications in his life. He has the affairs, yeah. but then... But that's true. He has the yeah. affair. And then on top of that, he has his mistress in town and then invites his wife to come stay too. So he makes that complication for himself. He makes this move. He agrees yeah. to sign on to make a movie, even though he doesn't have an idea. And he has all this production started, even though there's no script or no, I, no concept of what he's going to do. So he kind of made that complication. We call it the Marvel method now. Yeah, and he just kept trying to like dance away from all his issues and problems. Where realistically, if he just kind of like, yeah, kind of instead of trying to say something simple, just kind of kept it simple, I think that that yeah. would have avoided a lot of problems. And I think that stress that he created is what perpetuated his inability to create. So I think my takeaway from this movie is to try to be mindful of just trying to keep things as uncomplicated as possible where you can because ultimately it's going to give you more clarity in every aspect of life yeah i do want to like add conversely like i had a thought as we were talking like much earlier on in the however long it's been but as a man like my default sort of and i, I hate even saying this like so broadly as to say men or whatever but i feel i i do feel like it's tied to my gender a little bit or my how I see my gender. I just want to dress cool and avoid like every problem I can humanly avoid. And that is causing more trouble for Guido than if he kind of faced things head on a little bit. And I think that's something I'm pulling from this is that, yeah, it's a philosophy of like dressing nice and, you know, kind of avoiding problems, but it's really causing more issues than it, than it solves for him. 
Yeah. A nice suit doesn't solve all your problems, buddy. <laughs> I love it. I lo Thank you for summarizing that in a much better way than I, than I tried to piece it uh, together. Well, it's my one moment of clarity before we end the episode. It's sad for both of us. They only come right at the end of the episode. Well, I'm tired. I always have like one moment of clear thought before I just turn into a babbling mess, which has been most of the past hour and 53 minutes, according to the timer. So... I think it's time we Woo. wrap it up and say thanks for listening. Uh, like, listen, subscribe, all those call to actions that every other podcast mentions. If you want to email us, our email is cheerupbuddypod at gmail.com. Email us about movies you'd like us to talk about. Or if you want to yell at us about our analysis of surreal Italian films in comparison to neorealism, uh, we'll read it, but we probably won't understand it or give a shit. But it'd be nice to hear from you. Yeah. Do if you're listening to this podcast, you know what to do based on every other podcast you've ever listened to. So please do those things. Thank you for listening. Right, we'll see you next time, I guess. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bene. Molto bene. Guido, why don't you call your mother? <laughs> you get in there. Ciao.